Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 26th of August with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I was delighted to speak with Nigel Payne, Supply Chain Director at Britvic. In a wide-ranging conversation, we talked about Britvic's impacts and net zero strategy, supply and relationships, and how the company is tackling its packaging challenges. That's coming up, as is a conversation I had with Chiara Vitali from Robertsbridge about a new piece of research into the changing impacts of meat eating and interventions that can effectively reduce consumption. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners, the company that bottles Coke products in Europe, Australia, New Zealand and other South Pacific markets, has announced a new financing-based supplier incentive scheme linked to sustainability targets. Backed by specialist food and agriculture bank Rabobank, the programme will incentivise and reward suppliers for improving their ESG performance as part of Coca-Cola's ambition to reach net zero by 2040. The first of its kind in the beverage industry, the programme will provide competitive finance to suppliers that make improvements against sustainability KPIs in the form of incremental discounts from the initial funding rate. 90% of Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific Partners' emissions are in its supply chain, and the company has already asked its suppliers to set and validate emissions reductions with the Science-Based Targets Initiative by 2023, committing to 100% renewable electricity by 2023 as well, and to share carbon footprint data. Business sustainability ratings provider Ecovadis will assess the supplier performance, improving their ESG ratings. The programme is being launched initially in Germany and then suppliers in the rest of Europe and the South Pacific markets. Another week, another labelling scheme, this time being mooted by the EU to assess the quality of ESG market benchmarks so that investors are not misled by corporate sustainability claims. Asset managers have been using benchmarks to find the right investments for their clients and the rise and rise of so-called sustainable funds has coincided with concerns over the basis for their credentials. According to the European Securities and Markets Authority, the fact that there is not clear labelling raises questions on the inclusion of companies with a negative environmental or social impact in ESG benchmarks. The authority says that the introduction of an EU ESG benchmark would provide a tool against greenwashing. The next step would be for the European Commission to set out rules changes before presenting them for approval to the European Parliament and individual EU governments. A number of new services have been reporting about a looming crisis for fertiliser supply, exacerbating the challenges facing global food supply chains. Problems from extreme weather affecting harvests, particularly in vulnerable regions including parts of Africa, have been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. This has cut green exports, but also Russia's highly significant role in providing the raw ingredients for chemical fertilisers and the finished product to markets around the world. High energy costs have also impacted fertiliser production. The finished product has increased in cost by 300%, some say. As we reported in the podcast, the African Development Bank has warned that the continent is facing a 20% decline in food production worth over 11 billion US dollars. The bank says that Africa is short of 2 million tonnes of fertiliser. And when supplies get through, the spike in costs will inevitably mean higher food prices for the farmers to simply break even, making the food poverty crisis even more acute. A new campaign from the Responsible Investment Nonprofit series, based in Boston in the US, has been launched with the aim of engaging big companies and investors on the reforms necessary for the sustainability of global water resources. Series says that the Valuing Water Finance Initiative is the only global investor-led initiative aimed at moving companies to respond to the global water crisis. The initiative is targeted at 72 companies in multiple sectors, including food and drinks companies such as PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, Nestle, Unilever and Kellogg's, and fashion brands including Adidas, Burberry and Levi's. The companies are being asked to prioritise six targets, focusing on protecting water quantity and quality, ecosystem protection and restoration of degraded habitats, 
and access to water and sanitation for indigenous communities in areas of operation and impact. The Innovation Forum Autumn Events includes the next in our series on the future of plastics and packaging on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impacts at scale. Among those already confirmed to take part in the conference sessions are business experts from Unilever, Kellogg, Mattel and Nestle. And our flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November, also in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion. We'll hear from the likes of Golden Anchor Resources, Dole Food, Tesco, Natura, Kraft, Diageo and many more. And if you'd like to join us, you can save €200 Euros if you reserve your place before the 2nd of September. Coming up now are highlights of a conversation I had recently with Nigel Payne, Supply Chain Director at Britvic. Nigel, why don't you start us off by giving us a very quick introduction to Britvic as a business. What's its size and what do you guys do? So Britvic's soft drinks manufacturer. We make market sell soft drinks, have been doing since the 1930s. Most people will know it as a traditional British company, but today it's a two billion pound market cap organisation with production sites in Great Britain, Brazil, France, Ireland, and offices in other far-flung places from the US all the way to Asia. And what are your main impacts as a business then? Let's start with our sustainability strategy. So we have this as healthier people, healthier planet, and that probably gives you some kind of idea of the two areas we're looking at. From a healthier planet perspective, it's really about a combination of three things. One is our packaging and the impact that has our carbon reduction, particularly through our manufacturing and, and the supply chain side of the business. But also really important to us is addressing water scarcity in the areas that we're making products. Then from the healthier people perspective, there's a whole number of ranges internally. This could be looking at diversity or wage equality. And if I look from an external lens, so from a consumer side of it, it's such things as calorie reduction in our drink. And these are areas we've been working on for a long time. If I just give you an example of one of them, so if I take calorie reduction, for example, we've been doing this in three ways. One is about reformulating our drinks, ones we currently make. Another one is new innovation, so making products ongoing with less calories. And the other way, which you might not think about, is how we use the power of the brands to educate our consumers. So, for example, we would only advertise our low or no calorie drink brands where available. So how are these impacts evolving? How have they been changing over the past few years? I've talked about calorie reduction. Let's just move on to some of the more sort of environmental. So if I talk about plastic, carbon and water, then all of these are becoming more and more pressing matters. What that does, that creates a bit of pressure in the organisation. That pressure actually creates quite an inspiring positive action. So it puts resource in the business, people, time and energy behind finding solutions. So in terms of what we're doing and how this is evolving within the business, if I take our carbon reduction programme to start with, we already made a commitment and that was about reducing the carbon produced in our operations, so our direct emissions, by 50%. And then our downstream operations, so our third party contributors, by 35% by 2025. And we put a baseline in of 2017. We're just over halfway through that journey at the moment. But take about plastic. This is something we've been gradually transitioning. So moving our plastic products, so plastic bottles, PET, for example, into recycled PET. 
that's one way of moving forward. The other thing we're doing is just reducing the amount of packaging we need overall. So that could be done in plastic through lightweighting our bottles. And again, we've been doing that. If I take a measure from 2017, up until the end of last year, we've taken just over 4,000 tonnes of plastic out through lightweighting bottles. And then the final one I talked about was water. And this is around scarcity. The goal here is for us to reduce the amount of water we use for every litre of product that we make. And that can be done a number of ways. So for example, we could recapture the water we're using and recycle it for cleaning, or just using more efficient technology, better pumps, for example. And then there's an external lens on that as well, which goes into the community. So for example, we've been working with the Rivers Trust wetland projects in a couple of our sites up and down the country in Leeds and Beckton. How do you work out or calculate when these potentially conflict? I mean, for example, you talked about reducing your plastic use, changing your packaging. What happens when you find that, well, making a reduction in that actually increases your carbon impact elsewhere, for example? How do you balance these impacts out? Definitely a difficult one to do. And there's some very clever people employed, just as I've said, you know, the urgency creates resource and often you need help to get to the answers in these things. So we have a clear target against each one, and you're absolutely right, there is interaction between them. If I take, for example, the the carbon you mentioned there, so cutting our carbon, increasing efficiency, I've talked about the targets there. Again, there's a number of ways you can do this. It's about improving our energy efficiency, so that would just be better in our operations. It could be about using low-carbon technology, and therefore we use just less resources as we're making our product And the other bit is working with our partners, because ultimately our partners has a massive part to play, certainly the technology side. And and if I think about our production sites, we're very reliant on our partners coming up with fantastic ideas to help us have more energy efficient solutions. Do you outsource your manufacturing then to partners or how much of it is manufactured in-house? If I just take the UK business as an example, and it's very similar numbers around the world, 95% of everything we sell in the United Kingdom is made by Britvic in the United Kingdom. There's a small amount of that that we outsource to third party, just where we may not have the current technology or it might be a new product for us that we want to test in the market before we go live. And we can work with people who are much more efficient and effective in that already for us. Where I was talking about there, Ian, was the equipment that we have The manufacturers of the equipment are always looking for new technology and efficiency on our behalf. You mentioned some interim targets then on your, I guess, your scope one and scope three emissions for 2025. What's your net zero strategy? What does that look like? It's about increasing efficiency for us. We've already talked about being carbon neutral by 2050. I did mention the ways that we're trying to do this. What we've done is effectively signed up to Science-Based Targets Initiative. Obviously, you'll know the format of that, but for us, it does a great job in setting out methods and targets. We were the first soft drinks company, actually, in the United Kingdom to sign up in 2019 to have a 1.5 degree Celsius target and have that verified by science-based targets. And so 2050, net zero carbon, and presumably you'll have continually evolving interim targets along the way. Yeah, exactly. So we already put in the first stage in that glide path of 2025 and the 50% reduction in direct emissions. Obviously, the marketplace, our customer base and technology is changing all the time. Pressure is a wonderful thing in business to, you know, accelerate solutions. At the moment, we're very confident of hitting that 2050 target and over time, we'll continue to review that. 
We have a committee internally that is ongoing reviewing all of those targets and working throughout our board to make sure that we're in line with marketplace expectations, customers, consumers and suppliers. You mentioned just now suppliers and we talked about this a little already, but clearly supplier relationships are going to be key for companies like Britvic to achieve the ambitious targets that are being set. How are these supplier relationships changing, do you think? Let's first of all start with we've got a lot of suppliers not just in equipment, but obviously we have a lot of ingredients. In fact, we're buying ingredients from 40 countries. That's just over 400 suppliers. And therefore, totally acknowledge that our impact is far beyond our direct business operations. You know, it stretches across the whole value chain. It's really vital for us that anyone we deal with, we're really confident in their ethical and environmental practices. We can therefore have a positive knock-on into the value chain. So if we can drive improvement through our needs into our suppliers' needs, then there's a positive, more holistic impact there. We have to have strong supplier relationships. That applies to both parties. So therefore, what we do as part of our procurement process with any potential supplier, this is where we need to turn to some third party for some support. So to get under the skin of their sustainability management and performance, then we'll use a third party. An example of that would be the SEDEX data exchange platform. And that allows us to assess all of their ethical risks, sort of build that into our decision-making. You know, it's full visibility of the business activities and the people that work within the supply chains that we use. Are you seeing an acceptance of the need for collaboration here between suppliers, but also at a peer level as well? I mean, the fact that we are seeing such ambitious targets around net zero and everything else, there seems to be an acceptance that collaboration is now absolutely 100% necessary. And are you seeing that reflected in the relationships that are evolving? Completely. I mean, I've been in the business long enough, 18 years, in fact, in this business. And the difference today is sustainability is now essential part of the business agenda. Well gone are the days where it's an afterthought. And there's pressure from all businesses, you know, I feel it within Britvic, to deliver real results against our commitments. And how we work with our partners is absolutely no exception to that. We're at that point now, sustainability is not a consideration, it's a necessity. And quite often, actually, having a sustainability-driven goal is the reason in the first place to even form a partnership. Where we're experts in make marketing and selling soft drinks, we need that help every now and again to really get to the sides behind finding the solutions. That's where I see working with partners for collaboration is really important. When you're developing these collaborations, then, what are the keys to identifying effective partners that will deliver mutual benefit for both sides? So stage number one is making sure that any of these partners we've got have actually got the capability sustainably focused values and actually capability to deliver against them. So that's our first start point. We then have our own internal responsible resourcing program. It's very rigorous. It has to be because any potential partner we get has to really perform because it reflects upon our business and our brands. And that's why I already talked about, you know, using third parties to help us in that. I mentioned SEDEX, we use another company, Ecovardis, and they really specialize in this area and they're supplementing our process. We've been doing this for a number of years. In fact, the two companies I mentioned there, we've been working with over the last several years, and it is working for us as a business. So if I go broader than the UK and go to our global footprint now, since 2018, when we put that sourcing program in place, we've now got 79% of all of our supplies coming through those supplier links and platforms so that we can have real confidence in who we're dealing with. Let's talk a bit about packaging. We've touched on this already. 
Obviously, the plastic issue, one that's a huge or has been huge for the last few years, one that's really impacting on consumers and their choices as well. What more can you tell us about what Britvic is doing on its packaging impacts and how are your suppliers helping in that? First of all, you know, a world without any packaging waste is what we're after. So the first part of that is making sure that all of our products that go out into the market are actually 100% recyclable. And we're consistent in putting that message on all of our products, whether that's on the bottle, the cap, our cans. And talking of cans, our aluminium cans, they're all 100% recyclable. But actually, more importantly, 74% of what's in them is already recycled. It's not just about being able to recycle the products. It's got to go further than that. An example of how we take that packaging in. So take our cans, for example. We have a number of companies that make our cans for us. We don't produce our own cans. But to save on carbon through transport, our biggest site in GB, which is in rugby, those people that know it, our can manufacturer is next door and we literally deliver the cans through a hole in the wall. A tunnel goes under between the two companies and it pops up the other side. So no transport involved at all in there. The other part of this is about you know just reducing the amount of packaging. I talked about lightweighting before. You can go one step further, so remove all the packaging. If you take an example of a classic British brand, Robinson Squash, we introduced that a number of years ago into some of the quick serve restaurants such as Subway, KFC, uh, on a dispense, so a fountain solution. So get rid of the packaging in its entirety. And then the other thing is we continue to explore different ways of enhanced recycling, such as chemical breakdown of plastics. We've even got testing on some plant-based bioplastics in some of our brands in France, where they're using ethically sourced sugarcane residue. And then the final bit I think to mention here is a circular packaging solution. And Britvic are one of the founding members of Circularity Scotland, which is the administrator for the upcoming Scottish Deposit Return Scheme. We'll continue to campaign for a, a well-run, consistent GB-wide deposit return scheme. How likely do you think that we'll have a GB-wide return scheme? So all the individual governments are committed, various different timeframes on all of this. I spent a number of my years in the USA, uh, 50 different states, very complicated. A vast number of the states do have a deposit return scheme. They make it work together, even with different deposit rates. I feel relatively positive that with the non-government organisations that we're part of and working with the government, at a point in time, we'll end up with a good uniform deposit return scheme. It's absolutely essential to get the stock material that we all need in the soft drinks industry for recycled PET. And this is somewhere where, I guess, peer-to-peer collaboration is going to be key. If everyone can agree that this is the specification for the input material and that specification allows it to be recycled as easily as possible, then that perhaps is a real going to be the sort of game changer. Absolutely. And we work through a couple of big organisations. The Soft Drinks Association, clues in the title. Our managing director is the president of that association and they're working hard as a peer set group to come up with solutions, but also the Food and Drink Federation. So if we expand it into packaging beyond soft drinks, but other areas that might use recycled PT, all of which will benefit dramatically from a deposit return scheme, as we see across other parts of the world, and in particular, Europe. You mentioned aluminium cans earlier. Are you seeing a trend away from PET bottles into aluminium cans? Because I mean, aluminium being something that can be infinitely recycled. 
It's difficult to answer in the context of the question. So we are seeing growth in both our PET products and our CAN products. There might be a nuance to the fact that we had more opportunity to grow in CANs. So very specifically, we are, but I'm not uh, 100% sure that that's related to consumer preference on recyclability, as opposed to it's a great price for a great brand, and we weren't selling it two years ago because we didn't have the capability. You mentioned consumers. How are you seeing consumer expectations around all these issues changing? In a number of ways. I mean, I started off right at the beginning talking about things like calorie reduction. We're probably seeing some of the biggest changes in content of product around ethically sourced ingredients, calorie reduction, removal of preservatives or non-natural products. A big shift to that, and we can see that coming in growth of our products. So the number one cola in the market for us is Pepsi Max, which is a zero sugar cola and has been. So that has outgrown our added sugar colas for a long, long time now. When it comes to other areas such as packaging, it's much harder to get a read because there's so many things driving consumer behavior once you get to point of purchase. What we do know, though, from studies is that certainly the new consumers, younger generation coming out, are much more aware of sustainability issues. And therefore, they've got a real passion for the environment and social justice. And that's something that we're really, really conscious of and trying to tap into. And a lot of that will come through in the future, I think, around as much as what you do as how you tell that story through your marketing and engagement with your consumer base. Yes, it certainly feels that the sustainability issues, plastic being a prime example, or the use of plastic being a prime example, really is engaging consumers now in a way that it never used to. And you mentioned earlier the kind of the power of the brand. Do you see your role as to develop a consumer awareness of these issues? And collectively, that's how we will all move towards the net zero future that so many brands are now committing to. We've got an internal statement around allowing people to enjoy everyday moments. And that relates very much to what's important to you. Being able to deliver, first of all, against what consumers want, so the future needs, whether that is more sustainable packaging, whether that's calorie reduction. But the other thing is we've got a massive responsibility into educating. Like I said before, how we advertise our brand, what we put in them, actually, we can have a real impact on society and lead an agenda for consumers and the environment. For us, it's about hitting the targets we've committed to but also about ever-evolving them. Uh, Pace of change is massive, and the agenda that we're talking about today wouldn't have been a conversation 10 years ago. And in 10 years' time, I dare say it will have moved forward a considerable amount, and therefore hit what you've got now, but we've got to continually revise what we're aiming to do as an organisation. I think it's very exciting how businesses are evolving the conversations, as you say, and the fact that these have to evolve further to get to the net carbon zero future that where people are looking at for 2050. And there's an acceptance that these conversations do have to evolve because we don't know yet how exactly it's all going to happen. People have a good idea, but the actual end solution to get to complete net zero isn't all in place yet. So they, as you say, the conversations are going to have to continually evolve. Nigel, thanks very much for your time. It's been fascinating hearing all about what's going on at Britvic. Thank you very much for your time. Good to speak to you. The impacts of our diet and how these are changing has certainly become big news. To find out a bit more, I recently spoke with Chiara Vitali from Consultants Robertsbridge, who led on a new piece of research into consumer attitudes to meat eating and how these are developing. We're going to be talking a bit about some research that you recently were involved in looking at the rise and rise of plant-based alternatives to meat. Before we get to that, why don't you give us a bit of background on some headline impacts of meat eating and how they're changing? 
Meat reduction is responsible for about 14.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Put that in perspective, that's as much of the operation of the world's entire transport network combined. So it really has the potential to have a major impact in altering the trajectory of climate change, depending on which way trends go. It's also the main cause of deforestation globally, particularly if you factor in both the land used to graze animals and the land used for the production of feed for the animals. So if you factor in both of these, you're essentially looking at over three quarters of available land for agriculture being used to actually for animal agriculture, for the production of livestock and therefore of meat and dairy. And how has this been changing? If you look at different parts of the world, the trends tend to look a little bit different. Very developed markets such as the US and Europe, meat consumption levels are already very high compared to the global average but they do look like they are plateauing. Some predictions think that in the next few years, even two to three years, they might plateau and then potentially begin to fall as greater awareness of the environmental impacts grow. If you're looking at other regions, more in the developing world, particularly um, parts of Asia and Africa, that's on the rise. But it's important to note that that's coming from a much lower baseline than in those first markets where it's already very high. What's the likelihood of that trend in developing economies continuing to grow? It depends on a bunch of factors. So it's a, it's a little bit tricky to predict. If we're looking at some of the awareness of the environmental impacts of meat consumption, that's definitely growing. And there are signs from some of the big emerging markets, such as China, that actually collectively the impact of meat consumption is being identified and policy levers might be brought in to start to address that. So if that were to actually happen at scale, you could actually be looking at those trends starting to plateau earlier on than they have done in, say, Europe and North America and, and potentially being brought back down. How are consumers currently being encouraged typically to eat less meat? And I know this is going to be different in different economies, but in general terms, what are the sort of things that consumers are, or how are they being encouraged to eat less meat? Honestly, the answer is they are not really being encouraged in any particularly concerted way at the moment. That's one of the things that led to us looking into this in a bit more detail and that leads to a lot of the sort of campaigning and awareness raising that's happening in this space. If you're looking at meat and dairy as a climate issue, they're not quite as established. I don't think some of the figures that we spoke about earlier are particularly well established in the public domain. Some efforts are being made to promote the transition to a more plant-based diet, but they do tend to be quite piecemeal, sort of either businesses taking the initiative. Maybe if you look at the UK context, the Committee on Climate Change has made recommendations for meat reduction, but the government has been very clear that they don't plan to make any recommendations on dietary changes. So it's a very fractured landscape at the moment, and you're looking at nudges here and there, but not a particularly concerted effort. Do you think that consumers see reduction of meat in their diets as an environmental imperative or is it coming down to healthy eating, do you think? I would say it's a combination of both. There's a growing awareness of the fact that particularly in, in a European market, same would be in North American developed markets, we probably are eating more meat than is good for us. And I think people are becoming increasingly aware of that. And that's probably leading to some of that saturation that we were talking about earlier. I think the awareness of the environmental impacts is really growing and is driving a, a little bit of that trend as well. So I would say it's a mix of both things and different people are likely doing it for different reasons. But the trend overall is unmistakable, really. The plant-based market 
is predicted to absolutely boom over the next five years or so. It's predicted to essentially grow from 13.6 billion, which was the figure in 2020, to 35 billion in 2027. So that's almost tripling of the market. And obviously a massive business opportunity for businesses who are involved in the sector. So you were obviously talking about the research you put together with your colleagues at Sonhaven in in producing a report called The Plant-Based Revolution, Fad or Fixture. In your research then, did you find out whether plant-based alternatives are more or less popular than lab-grown proteins? The constraint there is that lab-grown is not widely available at the moment. It's very much an emerging technology. What lab-grown meat has been produced, uh, that's been done at exceptional cost. I think the prediction is that the cost is definitely going to come down as the technology is developed and it potentially becomes available at greater scale. But I think at the moment, what you're looking at is very much a switch to the plant-based alternatives more so than lab-grown. But once lab-grown technology did become more widely available and affordable, I think you could also be looking at another tipping point in this transition. Your research identifies four waves, as you call them, of meat reduction. What are these? And let's go through them individually. And what are the driving attitudes for each group? Looking at data from across 10 markets, Globally, we were able to identify the profile of sort of four waves uh, that indicate four clusters of attitude to meat reduction on an environmental basis. So we identified a first wave, which we called the established pioneers. And these are the people who display quite high willingness to embrace the transition to plant-based options and also accept the fact that currently, and this is one of the main barriers we've identified to the transition, plant-based options do tend to be more expensive than meat-based but they're willing to cost on sort of ethical and environmental grounds, and they really represent the drivers of the market. We then identified two further waves of potential pioneers who are willing to change behaviour, but only really at the cost of relatively small sacrifices or changes to their current lifestyle. So again, when you're looking at that cost barrier, bringing that down is going to be very important to bringing wave two on board. And it's going to be even more important when it comes to wave three, who we call the pragmatic adopters, who are an extremely cost sensitive audience. So they are once again willing to change behavior, but only when it's cost neutral or cost beneficial to do so. So really that reaching price parity or price advantage to switching to a plant based option, which ultimately also kind of is an accurate reflection of the amount of resources that go into producing these products and the environmental impacts they have then you're looking at potentially bringing along those two further waves. And finally, we identified our fourth wave, who are the reluctant resistors. And in this case, what we identified as the primary barrier to behaviour change for those two in-between waves, cost, it's not really the primary motivator. They probably have other reasons, which could be cultural, which could be habitual for their behavioural choices. That's not to say that they're an anti-green group or they don't care about the environment, but they might express their green behaviour through different options. For instance, they might be reducing flying, but not be willing to consider a change to their diet. And what you're looking at with this group is they may well end up transitioning to a more plant-based diet, but that's likely to happen when wider society essentially shifts. Interesting that you're talking about price being such a motivating factor. I'd have thought that many alternatives to meat would be cheaper than their meat. Why is it that these are more expensive? Are we talking about the processed alternative that produced by businesses to be, if you like, a direct replacement for a meat product rather than people just having a diet that involves more fruit and vegetables? 
Yeah, so if you're looking at some of the direct replacements, which may or may not be particularly processed, for instance, you could be looking at dairy alternatives, as well as the slightly more processed foods that might be sort of based on mushroom protein, pea protein, etc. So what we were looking at specifically, and where this barrier is most significant, is where you're looking at direct replacements. Definitely, there are sort of plant-based alternatives, such as legumes, nuts, that are essentially at a lower cost as a product, but they do involve quite a significant shift in habit potentially for consumers. Whereas we're looking at certain products, for instance, more fast food based products, that kind of thing. That's where you're probably looking more at a meat alternative slotting in at a plant based meat or lab grown alternative slotting in. And that's where you're looking at more of a cost barrier. Did you do any research into if the deforestation risk costs or the kind of ecosystem services costs were included in meat and meat alternatives? In that instance, would meat come out as more expensive? Meat production at the moment is a heavily externalised process. Essentially, we are importing vast quantities of animal feed from areas that are often high deforestation risk trade flows which tend to be quite murky so if you were looking at these costs being adequately represented by the cost of meat then you would potentially be looking at a much higher cost. I think it's important to note that one of the reasons why plant-based alternatives at the moment are at a higher cost it's a much newer sector it's not established at scale yet it's not had the same amount of time as the meat production sector to find efficiencies and ways of externalizing those costs in the same way. So as it becomes more established, it will get closer to price parity or, or indeed a lower price. What then is the role of business in encouraging less meat eating, do you think? So we see a very important role for business. We touched upon earlier about the fact that this really isn't a domain in which government intervention is welcome or government sees its place to be directly intervening on individual diets on environmental grounds. So we see that actually business is really, really well placed, partly to use their existing infrastructure and to use their power to create efficiencies in production to be addressing that cost barrier and to be addressing the availability barrier, which is another thing that we really need to get right to enable as many consumers as would be willing to shift to a plant-based option. And they're also very well placed to identify and deploy those nudges that can also help create this behavioural shift, particularly amongst consumers where maybe the attitude alignment for a shift isn't quite there yet. One thing that's important to note is in our report, we identify a whole range of potential both public policy and particularly business policy options that could be deployed. But different audiences, potentially different regions are going to have different levers that are going to work to facilitate the transition. And it's really important for business to be out there testing these and really gathering data on what works, what doesn't. That proviso, we think that their role is going to be absolutely pivotal in creating this mass behaviour change. Can you give us some examples then of the sorts of levers that work in particular markets? Well, that's where the data isn't quite available yet in terms of what levers work in, in specific locations. There's really a need for a lot of trial and testing and gathering data and ideally sharing knowledge of what has and hasn't worked for different businesses. Some things that we know have been trialled are things like the placement of different alternatives within store, inclusion of alternatives in promotions, uh, that kind of thing. But again, I wouldn't say we really have a really good database to be able to identify sort of what are those behavioural levers that are really working. It'd be great to have that. 
Are there any other effective interventions then that you'd want to highlight? What works well from a government perspective? From a government perspective, it's just a really tricky environment for them to really step in and to be perceived to be dictating on diet. We actually really think that government should be creating an enabling environment for business to be delivering those nudges. One thing that civil society is very much calling for is that creation of that enabling environment, that consideration of, for instance, existing regulations on novel foods, are they fit for purpose, or actually evaluating new plant-based alternatives and allowing their safe but efficient entry into the market? Is government doing everything it can, essentially, to be enabling business to play its role in that transition? In summary, then, is the revolution in plant-based meat alternatives, is it a fad or is it a fixture? I guess probably... I'm going to think you're going to see a fixture, given what we've discussed. Absolutely. I think if you're looking at that data on projected market growth, it's clear that it's a market that's here to stay and is only on the rise and rise, as you said earlier. I think the environmental imperative is only going to become clearer and clearer. If you're looking at civil society positioning, where you've had for a long time, for instance, divestment campaigns from fossil fuels, that's something that's beginning to happen for meat and dairy production as well. It's just increasingly being identified as the climate risk and the catalyst of the biodiversity crisis that, in fact, at scale and in an industrial way, it currently is. So that awareness is only going to grow and the awareness of the need for the transition is only going to grow accordingly. So I think we would firmly say fixture. Certainly, if it's going to reach £35 billion, that's the global market, I guess. Yes, that's yeah, a global so market projection. Huge, huge opportunities for many. Events to see how things do develop over the next few years. But for now, Chiara Vitali from Robertsbridge, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. Do look out for the latest op-ed from Malin Baker on why business sustainability issues should not be seen as exclusively on the political left, and Mike Scott's August climate change column on why we need more efficient methods of cooling. Don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, you can take advantage of discounts and passes if you reserve your place now. Everything you need to know about these is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.